Okay, there we go. It's pick, picking it up. Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 9 this morning. First time we've said those words exactly. Uh, but as we get into this chapter, you may still feel like, boy, we're just covering the same ground. Like this just feels like we're kind of hearing the same general idea week in and week out. And if you're feeling that way, get over it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, if you're feeling that way, that's probably good. It's probably good. Luke is one book making one point, making one, describing one theme, okay? And so it's very long, and so that's why it feels like we're kind of making the same point. And obviously, I hope you know, when I was praying that you would laugh at my jokes and things like that, like, I'm sorry if that last joke offended you. I didn't mean to offend anybody, uh, but please forbear with me. Uh, I turn my sarcasm meter down when I preach, and I hope that you understand that. Uh, but all I was saying is that uh, we are covering the same ground over and over again, and uh, a lot of what this book is about is who Jesus is, what it looks like to follow him, and how people responded to him in his own day, and certainly people continue to respond in those same ways today. And so, in many ways, what Luke is doing in this book, and here we are in the ninth chapter, is he's uh, is, is similar to what someone does when they work for a political campaign. I've never done that. I will probably never do that. Uh, but those who work for political campaigns generally are trying to put, you know, an argument forward for why you should align yourself with this particular individual, why this person's, you know, merits are better than someone else's merits so that you will follow him, so that you will vote for him particularly and give money to his campaign. And so what Luke is doing is in some ways similar to that. Maybe another way to look at it is somebody who's conducting a job interview. You want to know everything you can know about that person that is pertinent to the position that he's interviewing for. So you're asking questions like, what is his experience? What has he done in the past, in other words? Is he qualified for this because he's gone to the right kinds of schools and done the right kind of training and gotten the right kind of certifications? And what Luke is doing here is basically saying, Jesus checks all the boxes for the Messiah. And so you should follow him. You actually should throw all your weight behind him and say, this is the person I'm going to align with. I'm going to follow. I'm going to worship them to tell other people to worship him. So if the question is, is Jesus worth following? If that's the question Luke is answering, is, yeah, is answering, the resounding answer he gives for you is, yes, put all your effort into following him. Worship him wholeheartedly. And so follow along as I read chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, and you'll see that he's continuing to make this this extended argument that Jesus is worth following, particularly because he is advancing the kingdom of God in the power of Christ. So let me read chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. 
And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. This past summer, right toward the end of summer vacation, uh, a friend in the in the area invited us to their community pool and so our family went and had a great afternoon there and it was just kind of the typical community pool that that you would expect very light nice and large and beautiful nice warm water and with a high diving board and our 10 year old son Thomas who's on the autism spectrum but but loves to take a challenge when he can get one at least most of the time uh, he was interested in getting up on that diving board and so he, you know, we were there right when they opened, so he was one of the first people up the ladder and uh, climbed up the ladder and got to the top and kind of stood there. And stood there and kind of looked down at us like, are there any other options kind of a thing? Like, is this really the only way down? And he stood there and he hesitated and he hesitated about whether he should jump or not. Have you ever been there before? Not, not on the diving board, but like, but... In that frame of mind, like, I just don't know if I should make this decision. Maybe that decision is, should I buy this car or this car from the auto show? Or should I, you know, buy this house or this house? My wife is one who, like, loves to cross off all the other options before she finally makes a decision. So, like, when we bought our house in Alabama, you know, seven years or so ago at this point, uh, the day that we went to go sign on our house, she was still rifling through Zillow, looking at all the other options in our town. Like, well, maybe there's a better one out there. And so she's very hesitant to actually, like, go actually dive into the deep end of the pool, so to speak. And maybe you're that way about following Jesus. Maybe there have been times in your life where you've thought, I just don't know that I want to be associated with that person, with Jesus, with who he says he is and all that goes along with that gospel message. Maybe there's some element of of the gospel that is embarrassing to you or confusing to you, and so you kind of hold back. 
And this passage is addressing that hesitancy, that question of should I do it? Should I take that next step and actually jump in? Should I go full throttle in following Christ? And so this passage is addressing that hesitancy and telling us that the kingdom of God advances in the power of Christ. And so you should then follow him in faith. And even those words, the kingdom of God, which show up several times in this passage, which is why I think they are the summary message of what this passage is about. Even that phrase sounds a little vague. And maybe you've heard it so many times in your Christian life that you don't even question it, but you still don't exactly know what it means. And the idea of the kingdom of God is the idea that throughout the Bible, the Bible is holding up God as the eternal king. And that's the case because he's the creator. So he made the place where we live. So the kingdom of God refers to the person of God as the king ruling over the people of God whom he created in the place of God. And so essentially when we think about the kingdom of God, we're talking about who he is and what he does, how he rules over all things. And throughout the New Testament, what we often see is that the kingdom of God then becomes a synonym for the gospel. And that's the case even in this passage. It's saying the same thing when we say, He's preaching the gospel, it's he's preaching the kingdom, which is to say that when someone becomes a Christian, they are bowing before God as king. They're saying, this person is the true ruler, and so I'm going to follow him. And so the kingdom of God in this passage is advancing. And it's getting to the point where Jesus, it's not that he's realizing this, this had always been the plan, he's beginning to delegate what he's doing to other people, to specifically the 12 apostles, to go and preach the gospel and go and heal in the same way that he has been doing those things throughout this book of Luke. You remember back in chapter 4, he's proclaiming the message that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, particularly Isaiah chapter 60 and Isaiah chapter uh, 40. And so basically, the message needs to keep getting out Jesus is one person. Yes, he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And so he delegates the message to go be preached by these followers, by these apostles, to go into other villages where Jesus hasn't been yet, or to maybe go back and do another loop through them. And on the way, not only are they preaching the message, they're also doing what Jesus has been doing in healing. And again, that simply reminds us that in a fallen world, there are lots of people who have afflictions, who need to be healed, And Jesus couldn't go to all those people himself, and so uh, he delegates this mission to the apostles. And so we see in verses 1 through 6 that the kingdom of God advances under the direction of Christ. And as part of that, he gives his apostles a clear mission. It's a two-part mission. Go preach the kingdom, go preach the gospel, and go heal people's physical needs. And so you see that in in verses 1 and 2, where he gives them power and authority. So he's delegating his power. He's giving them, you know, as if they're ambassadors, to go into these other places, these other villages, and specifically to accomplish the same kind of ministry and the same kind of mission that he's already been doing. And so you see that he gives them power and authority over all demons. Well, that makes you think of the man in chapter 8, about verse 23 or so, who had been filled with demons his entire life, uh, the, man, the man of the Gerasenes, as the passage describes him, and Jesus cast out those demons. Well, now Jesus is saying, you have authority over those demons as well. Go into places and minister to people who have had their lives ruined, really, by demonic powers. And also, cure diseases. 
there in the end of verse 1, and that makes you think of, for instance, the woman with the issue of blood in the last passage that we looked at, or the young girl, uh, Jairus's daughter, or Jairus's, depending on how you pronounce it, um, daughter who was sick nearly to death, and then she actually did die, and Jesus rose her from the dead in the end of chapter 8. And so, uh, and many, many other examples of that throughout the book of Luke. What Jesus is doing is saying, I'm giving you a clear mission to go and accomplish the same ministry that I have had, uh, just kind of delegating this authority to them. So the Lord gives a clear mission as this kingdom advances under his direction. In verses 3 and 4, the Lord promises the needed resources for going to uh, advance the kingdom of God under his direction. And so in verse 3, he says, don't take anything with you that would make it seem like this is a human operation, basically, that you know, you're well prepared, you've got bags of extra food and extra clothes and all the resources you're going to need, take a sleeping bag, saying, no, don't take any of that stuff. As you go out and proclaim this message, trust that I will be providentially preparing the way for you and finding places for you to stay and food for you to eat. And in so doing, all the glory goes to Christ. It's not that you are well enough prepared for the task that God gave you. It's that Christ is the one who has gone before you, so to speak, and spiritually speaking. And this is why he tells them, don't take a staff, don't take a bread, uh, don't take a bag, don't take bread, don't take money, don't take two sets of clothes, two tunics. Just take the bare essentials and leave the rest in God's hands. And obviously this was an unusual situation. We don't encourage missionaries to do this today, okay? Um, the apostles ministered in a unique time period, in a unique role, and apostles are no longer living. And so when you hear someone referred to as an apostle, just walk away. Just leave that alone. That's not biblical ministry. Uh, these commands then are not timeless. This passage is not telling you you should go as a missionary to Central Asia, where I was praying for a few minutes ago. And you should go and you should not take anything with you. You should not take any money. You shouldn't raise any money. Don't waste your time. Just get out there on the field because people are dying and, and need to hear the gospel. Well, yes, they do. But these commands are not specifically for you in this time period. Okay, so redemptive history has progressed from this stage. And so uh, we live in a different era after the apostolic age. So I hope that, that makes sense that these commands have, you know, nuance to them in our understanding today. But this idea in verse 4 is, when you get into a town, pick a house to stay there and stay there. And then when you're done there, leave and go on to the next town, which keeps you from staying in one place for too long, which means that you're seeing the urgency of getting the gospel to all these other villages. But it anticipates in verse 5 that people will reject the message as well. Jesus knew that to be the case. Some people would receive it well, and some people would reject it. Verse 5, when they do not receive you, leave that town and shake the dust off your feet. Well, that was what Jewish people would do when they left a Gentile country. So, for instance, if someone had gone over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, now they're in you know a foreign country, so to speak, a place where primarily Gentiles live as opposed to Jewish people in Israel, and you would kind of symbolically shake the dust off of your feet as a way of saying, now I'm going back onto, you know, my native homeland ground. And so I'm leaving this dirt behind me. Well, what is happening here is these people are going through Jewish villages, but they're still shaking the dust off their feet, saying those who reject God, those who reject the kingdom of God and the, the ministry of Christ 
are the same as those who are Gentiles, have, who worship other gods, for instance. And so what Jesus is doing here in verse 5 is anticipating that, yes, some people will receive the gospel message, but others are going to reject it. And we as Christians need to be aware of that and, and conscious of that reality and okay with that reality in the sense that we aren't the people who can change someone's mind, okay? Don't just go and take a class on persuasion when you're trying to get ready to share the gospel with somebody. Yes, you want to persuasively and beautifully engage someone with the gospel, but it's the Holy Spirit who changes people's minds. Not, that's not your job. And so, you know, essentially we could say that's above your pay grade. You don't get anybody saved. You lead people to Christ, perhaps, by giving them the truth and continuing to seek to win them for Christ. I'm not diminishing any of that, but I am saying that this is ultimately the Lord is the one uh, who saves people. And so we seek to do our job faithfully. We seek to go and do what Christ has called us to do. He gives this clear mission of going to preach the gospel, proclaim the message, and let it sit on people's hearts and let the Holy Spirit cause those seeds to germinate and bear fruit eventually. But be aware that some people will reject you. But also be encouraged that some people will hear and respond, even if it's down the road, even if we have to add the word eventually after it. Most of us were not saved the first time we heard the gospel. And so don't expect that somebody else will either, though of course the Lord can work in that way. But what we see in verse 5 is that the Lord, as the gospel, the kingdom of God advances under the direction of Christ, the Lord himself anticipated rejection. And in verse 6, we see that the Lord sees the mission through. They departed, so the apostles got up and did what Jesus said to do. They obeyed, and they went through the villages, and they did what he said to do. They went preaching the gospel, which is another way of saying preaching the kingdom, because that's what he told them to do back in verse 2. So these are synonymous terms here. They went preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they're making these circuits throughout the countryside, throughout the Jewish villages, proclaiming that the Messiah truly has come. Here's how you can know it and describing what kinds of miracles they've seen Jesus doing, describing what the message that Jesus is preaching is back in chapter 4, for instance. And so ultimately the Lord is the one who is seeing this mission through. That's what verse 6 is showing us. They're the ones taking the message, yes, but they're doing it under the Lord's command. He's the one who designed the mission. He's the one who provides for the mission. That's why he said not to take a bag and money and bread. And so he gets the praise then. And this reminds us as Christians that he is the head of the church. Colossians 1 tells us Christ is the head of the church. He's the one who designed the church, so he gets to tell us how to run it. He's the one who gets to tell us who should be exalted. All right, when I leave in 50 years and retire as the pastor of this church, please don't put a picture of me up in the lobby. Like, this church is not about me. It's not about the previous pastor or the previous 10 pastors. It's about Christ. And so please just exalt him. He's the head of the church. No one else. And so that means that he gets, he gets to say what happens here. He gets the, the, the final say. We don't negotiate with him about how we should run his church. We aren't supposed to be inventing new strategies and manuals for how to see the church grow or to how to help the gospel, you know, as if it needed a little boost, you know, a little miracle grow. No, just do what he said to do. 
just follow the means of grace that he has provided. And so we go back again and again to what the Bible says and let him get the final word and get all the praise. Uh, To build a healthy church, you don't need an MBA, a Master of Business Administration. You need a Bible, and you need dependence on the Lord through prayer, and you need patience. And so may the Lord help us as a congregation avoid being pragmatic and avoid gimmicks, as 2 Corinthians tells us to do, and rather walk by faith. So the kingdom of God advances under the direction of Christ. In verses 7 through 9, the kingdom of God advances in the face of opposition. We have somebody mentioned here who hasn't been mentioned in several chapters, and this is Herod the Tetrarch, so the ruler of this region of Judea uh, in the time when Jesus was living. He doesn't show up a lot in Luke, but it's always really interesting when he does show up in Luke. Uh, One of the previous times he showed up was in chapter 3 when we found out that he was married to his brother's wife. Great. Uh, Not great. Like, that was really bad. And John the Baptist let him know that. And John the Baptist confronted him and rebuked him. And Herod said, you're out of here, and threw him in jail. That was one of the previous times when Herod the Tetrarch was mentioned in this book. One of the next times he's mentioned is in chapter 23, not the next time, but a previous time or a following time that will come later down the road as we preach through this book. In chapter 23, Herod wanted to see Jesus, and he happened to be in town when Jesus was seeing Pontius Pilate and being, uh, you know, examined by the rulers. And what you find out is that Herod basically just wanted to see Jesus do a sign. You know, just, I want to see one of your miracles. Just show me and then I'll believe. And Jesus didn't give him a miracle. Jesus isn't here to entertain people. And so uh, this, this Herod character who's mentioned here in verse 7, just have your eyes open when he's mentioned in the book of Luke. But what we see is that God's work provokes curiosity. He's hearing about all that's happening and he was perplexed. That word doesn't show up a whole lot in the Bible, but it does show up later in in Luke chapter 24. So let me just read that to you. And this is the day of Jesus' resurrection. And you have these women who had ministered to Jesus, and they're coming to the tomb. And in chapter 24, verse 4, while they were perplexed about this. Basically, to be perplexed means you're standing there scratching your head. Like, this just doesn't really make sense. Where did his body go? (laughs) That's what they're asking in, in verse 24. Here in chapter 9, Herod's just like, this just doesn't make sense. People don't just raise the dead. People don't just recover from lifelong illnesses. People don't just cast demons out of people. And so Herod the Tetrarch heard about what was happening. He's sitting there scratching his head. He's perplexed because people are saying random messages about who Jesus was. He's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Wait a second. How did John get dead? (laughs) He was in prison, we know that, back in chapter 3, because he was confronting Herod himself. And then we find out in chapter 7 that John is still in prison, just a couple chapters previous to where we are here. Whether that's weeks or months, we don't exactly know, but uh, middle of chapter 7 or so, remember John the Baptist is saying, um, ask Jesus if he is the one we've been waiting for, and... Jesus said, well, let me just tell you what's happening. The blind are getting their sight. The lame are walking. The dead are being raised. You connect the dots. You tell me if I'm the Messiah. 
is essentially what Jesus told John the Baptist. And so there in chapter 3, he's arrested. In chapter 7, he's in prison. In chapter 9, he's beheaded. Luke doesn't give us the details. In his mind, that's kind of like a sub-story. Some of the other gospel writers give us a few more details here and there about John's time in prison and why he was beheaded and things like that. But what we do see is that uh, the gospel raises questions, it provokes curiosity, and it brings about persecution. Why was John in prison? Because he was preaching the gospel. Why are people in the Middle East and in Central Asia and various other places going to prison? Because they're preaching the gospel. And so the message of Christ is a dividing line. And people have to decide which side of that they're on. And perhaps you're here because you're curious about Christianity and you're asking questions. You've heard people pray or you've heard of, you've read parts of the Bible. Perhaps you found a Bible in a hotel drawer in a nightstand and you're just curious about what Christians believe and what Christians say. And the message of Christianity, I'll just tell you, is very simple. It is that we are worse than we can even begin to imagine. We were created by God and we rebelled against God and so we are terrible people. We are fundamentally evil in our hearts, not fundamentally good in our hearts. This is the message of what the Bible says about man, is that we are very wicked in our hearts. We rebelled against God, but the God who made all things is way better than we can even imagine. Way more gracious, way more generous, way more merciful than we can even imagine or fathom. And the way that he has shown his kindness to us is by sending Jesus to die for us terrible people, us as terrible people, and to pay for that sin and rebellion. And so when we come to realize that we could never save ourselves because of how bad we are, but that Jesus is eager to save us because of how gloriously generous and kind he is, when we come to see that we are more broken then we can even begin to fathom so that you can't heal yourself by going to the self-help section of Barnes & Noble. When you begin to connect those dots and see, I can't fix myself, you see how kind Christ is and you put your faith in him and you believe that he is the one who can heal you and save you. And so you turn from your sin out of that love for him and gratitude for him and belief for him. You become a Christian. You receive new life. You become a child of God. You become part of his family. And we want that for you. And so if you have questions about that, we would love to talk to you about that. Just talk to anybody around you. And if they don't have answers, they'll send you to somebody else who does. But we as Christians want to encourage you to continue to ask good questions, to continue to read your Bible and and see what Christians believe and what we do. And so if you have questions about that, please ask us. Herod certainly had his handful of questions. Maybe you have yours as well, and we want to help answer those. But God's work does provoke persecution. We see Herod being defensive. He's a little bit insecure, it seems. And he was, John was threatening to him, so he killed him. It was that simple. And certainly there were many other people like that, that, that Herod treated that way. And Jesus was threatening to him later on as well. Because Jesus actually, as gentle and lowly as he was, is a very threatening character when he tells you, that you deserve to die because of your sin. You, you deserve the wrath of God because of your sin. This is the message that Christ lays out for us. And so later, Herod, in response to Jesus' threats, so to speak, the, the threatening nature of Jesus to Herod, he mocks him and he sends him back to Pilate to be killed. What we learn from church history, though, 
is that when someone tries to stamp out the work of God, because it's threatening, for instance, it has the opposite effect. So if there's a world ruler right now who hates Christianity and wants to stamp it out, it's like standing, you know, putting your foot down on an ant pile. You might kill some ants, but they're just going to scatter and they're going to go and create bigger and better ant piles. And so what Tertullian, a church father a couple centuries after Christ, said was that the, the, the blood of martyrs, I had to think of it for a second, the blood of martyrs is like the seed of the church. So when someone dies for the faith, it causes people to ask questions that they weren't asking before. And say, why in the world, for instance, was that person willing to have lions eat him in a public show here in Rome? This actually happened over and over and over again. Why would someone be willing to be eaten by lions while people are standing there cheering it on? And so people would watch that happen and then walk back to their houses and be scratching their head saying, what in the world is going on? Why wouldn't that person just say, never mind, I don't believe this anymore? Certainly other people did that. Certainly people of other religions would have done that. But here, these Christians are saying, yeah, I'm so convinced of it. I'll let the lions come and eat me. Or any other way that they decided to kill him. And that has happened in a variety of ways throughout church history. Whether it be by by drowning or poisoning or any number of other ways, people who follow Christ in hard places, often die for their faith. Why are people willing to do that? Because the kingdom of God is so glorious. And so when you see people like John the Baptist have his life snuffed out because of his message and his faith in Christ, what we see is that you can kill people for their faith, but you can't kill the faith. You can't stop the faith from advancing. And so you'll end up having the opposite effect. So to the world rulers who are alive right now, we would simply say, keep doing what you're doing. You know, we would rather have people have religious freedom, have the ability to gather publicly as we're doing right now. But if you're going to make it difficult, they're still going to gather and people are still going to get saved because you can't stop God. And so we praise the Lord that he is this powerful. So the kingdom of God advances in the face of opposition in verses 7 through 9. And finally, in verses 10 through 17, certainly one of the most well-known stories in the New Testament of the feeding of the 5,000, what we see is that the kingdom of God advances in visible, practical ways. Verses 10 through 11 sounds like it's been an exhausting season of life for Jesus and for his apostles now, and so they kind of go take a little retreat together. But even while they're away, retreating from the masses, trying to find a little alone time, the people find out. It gets out on Twitter, and they get to where he is, and they surround him again, and look at Jesus' reply. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them. Luke talks about welcoming over and over and over again. You can just search that in the book of Luke and underline all the times you see someone being welcomed by Christ or by his followers or by God. Jesus is always ready to minister. That's what verses 10 and 11 point out for us. He doesn't need his alone time. Yes, he's fully man. That's why he went to go retreat. He needed a little space. And we see this throughout the Gospels that Christ would regularly go and do this to rest, to pray, to sleep, to eat. But here, he's still willing to to minister. And what does he do? He doesn't reinvent the wheel. He does exactly what he sent out his apostles to do. He spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. This sounds a lot 
like verse 1. They have authority, they go and preach, they cure diseases, and it sounds a lot like verse 6. They went preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Well, here they come to Jesus and he keeps preaching the kingdom of God and curing those who need to be healed. Jesus was always ready to minister. Well, you have all these people now who have come into this isolated place wherever Jesus and his disciples had gone to, maybe some kind of little mountain hideaway where they could just be alone. And all these people are there and it's getting late. The sun is setting. People are hungry. Maybe people are getting a little hangry even. And the disciples think, we've got a big problem on our hands. We've got to get these people out of here so they can go get some food. And Jesus emphatically says, well, you give them food. In the Greek, it is written in such a way that you kind of underline the word you. You give them food. And they're kind of like, we don't have food. (laughs) What are we supposed to do here? What Jesus does here is he makes us acknowledge our inadequacy. We see that we can't solve problems on our own. And that is true on so many levels in our lives. But Jesus forces us to acknowledge our inadequacy and then demonstrates his power to provide. That's really the the gist of verses 14 through 17. And this passage should make us think of a lot of parts of our Bible. Where's somewhere else in the Bible where you have a lot of people in a deserted place and they need something to eat? Well, it makes us sound a lot like God's people walking through the wilderness and God providing manna and meeting those needs. And here we have Jesus as the true and better Moses who actually feeds his people. And this makes us think of chapter 6 in the book of Luke, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger now, for they shall be satisfied. There will be a day coming when we will feast in the house of Zion, and we are eating with Christ himself at the messianic banquet. And it's not because we're starving, but it's because Christ is so satisfying, and we are, we are gathering around him to worship him. I love a song called, We Will Feast in the House of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. Beautiful song of future anticipation, a song that propels us to keep going and following Christ. So the Lord is demonstrating his power to provide. He's never overwhelmed by the size of a problem. The fact that there are 5,000 men and then their wives and their children as well on top of that uh, the, the, the Gospels make clear there are more people than that than just the 5,000. He's not overwhelmed by the size of a problem. He's not limited by a lack of resources. And you come to verse 12, and he's provided this miracle, and the, does, none of the Gospel writers give any kind of sense of how this actually happened. They're not concerned about that. They're saying this is a miracle. It's beyond explanation, just like the resurrection of Jesus is beyond explanation. Uh, humanly speaking, But you come to the end of this story without any explanation of how Jesus actually satisfied them with this bread and with these fish. And you have the disciples going around, each one carrying a basket, picking up all the leftovers. And so you you come to this detail at the end of the passage in verse 17. They all ate. They were satisfied, which means they weren't just giving each other a couple crumbs. Like everyone ate everything they wanted to eat that day. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Why in the world are there 12 baskets? Why do the gospel writers make that important enough to tell us? Well, I think it's because there are 12 apostles who have been told to go out preaching the kingdom of God. And every one of them left that day carrying a basket of bread saying, you know, Jesus told us not to take a bag, not to take a staff, not to take a change of clothes, 
not to take bread. And here we are walking away with a whole basket of bread, saying, look at how powerful he is. He's the one who has kept his promise. He provides for his mission. He gives you everything you need to do what he has called you to do. And those apostles should have left that day and left all their hesitancy about following him in that desert place because they say, look, Christ has provided for me. He said not to take bread. Here's why I don't need to take bread because he's the one who provides it. And so the hesitancy about following Christ is left behind. Remember, most of the miracles we've seen this far in Luke have been summarized with a statement about how people responded. They were amazed. They were astonished. They glorified God. They followed Jesus. They proclaimed the message that they had seen that day. There's no comment about that. Why would there be no comment? And I think it's because this message, this miracle, was for the disciples. This was about, you see me work, and now you go out and do the work because you know I'm going to provide for you. This message is so big This ministry is so powerful. You are going in the Lord's strength. And so the hesitancy of saying, can God really do what he says he's going to do? Is this message really worth me proclaiming it everywhere I go? All the hesitancy coming from those questions or that is really underlying those questions is left behind because all of those brothers left with a basket of bread that day in their hands, saying, God is obviously powerful enough to meet my needs. And so we're at that pool this summer, and Thomas is standing there on the edge, obviously fearful, obviously wondering, what have I gotten myself into? And he just decides to go for it. And he jumps, and he makes a big splash. And he comes out of the water, and he laughs, and he does it again and again and again and again. The hesitancy that he was experiencing there, the fear, the can I do this? Is it worth it to do this? Is it better to somehow crawl around these people who are standing behind me and get off this this blasted high platform? No, just go for it. And he went for it again and again. All the hesitancy was gone. This passage addresses our hesitancy, as so many others in this book have already done. Jesus is worth it, this passage is telling you. Follow him. Yes, Forsake your sin. If it means leaving your family behind, leave your family behind. That's the kind of message that this book is laying out for you. Jesus is worth it, so follow him. He is worth your time. He is worth your money. He is worth your investment in theological training or in preparing to go to the mission field or any other venue. Jesus is clearly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So put your faith in him and follow hard after him. Let's close together in prayer. Our Father, we stand in awe of your power to create food where there was very little food. There was not enough, but you demonstrated your power. And we are amazed that you would continue to provide for us to do your work and continue to compel us to go to the nations and to go to our neighbors with this message that Jesus is the King. And we pray that we would follow hard after him and we would truly be willing to forsake all so that we will have entrance into the eternal kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.